0: So I'm going to go, uh, first of all, to Acts 5 and verse 14, just these three verses. It says this, it says, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter, who is one of the, the disciples passing by, might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people, And those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. I'm going to pray for us this morning, uh, and we're going to get into this scripture and throw it back to the book of Luke uh, for a little bit. And uh, hopefully you'll be encouraged in the few minutes that we have left. So let's just pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much this morning for uh, the fact that you are the one who speaks, God. You're the one who speaks. You're the one who changes hearts, God. As, as rebellious and as stubborn as our hearts might be, God, as closed off as our minds might be, God, you have a way of taking hardened hearts and, and making them beat again, God. We thank you this morning that you speak to every one of us, God. You pour your love and the reality of your presence out into our spirits, God, and you cause us to know you in that real experiential way, God. We thank you, Jesus, for, for lives changed and, 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 and hearts changed in this moment. And we thank you that you encourage us to keep our eyes on Jesus, who is both the author and the finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the incredible things that we uh, see with this early church is that these people, as ordinary as they were, as imperfect as they were, they became Passionate. We know that at times, some of them ran away. Before they had known whether Jesus was going to be raised from the dead, some of them ran away. Peter went back to fishing. Guys were, they, they were ready to time out. They were ready to call it quits. And yet we see after they connected with Jesus, after they saw Jesus and they witnessed that he was truly raised from the dead and that he was alive and that he was real, these ordinary people that had ordinary everyday trades and lives, these people became passionate. And they started sharing the message of the gospel with whoever they came in contact with. They were preaching in the temples. They were preaching in the streets. They were preaching to the sick. They were preaching to the the poor. They were preaching to the wealthy. Wherever they went, this message completely consumed them. This passion for the message, for the grace of God, for the gospel consumed them. And, And they started preaching it. And the more they preached it, the more they got into trouble. This is not just an ordinary message. The message that these people were sharing that they became so passionate about that they were willing to give their lives for it was not just a set of rules. How passionate can you be enforcing rules on others? Hey, I just wanna tell you, you're all wrong. You're all living bad lives. I'm gonna tell you how to live a good life. Have you got a pencil? We're gonna take down 10 steps to living a good life. That's not a message I'm willing to die for. But these apostles, these disciples, these believers had come into contact with something very different. A message that completely consumed and gripped and and overwhelmed them and and caused them to be willing to go through these things. We see that at one point, uh, Peter gets thrown into prison again, Peter and John, and and miraculously, through the work of an angel, they get released from prison that night. And the next morning, instead of these guys running away, uh, the high priest sends for them and says, hey, I wanna chat to them. This is in Acts 5. Hey, I wanna chat to them. And they go to the prison. The prison's empty. They said, we threw those guys in prison last night for preaching, and this morning somehow they're not in prison any longer. They're now in the temple preaching again. They didn't even try and run away. They said, we're just gonna go back and share the message and share the message. And I wanna talk about, what I wanna talk about today is what was that message? What was the message that Jesus gave to the disciples that they were so passionate about preaching that they would even risk their lives for it. That's what I want to talk about today. And that's where we're going to throw it back to the book of Luke. Because there was a time where somebody asked Jesus this exact question. In fact, there was a lawyer who said to Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? In other words, how am I made right with God? How do I make it into heaven. If you ask people that question today, if you, if you just go around in general to those who believe in life after death, and you say to people, how do you make it into heaven? The normal standard kind of answer is just be kind of a good person, right? But how are we measuring that? Compared to whom should we be good people? Compared to Hitler? Compared to Mother Teresa? Somewhere in between, maybe Nelson Mandela? I don't know. Compared to whom should we be a good person? And so that becomes a very vague concept, just being good in order to get into heaven. So, what was Jesus's reply? We see in Luke 10, verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Jesus was speaking to some of his disciples. He had sent 72 of them out to go and pray for people and miraculous things were happening. People were getting healed and people were getting delivered and there was, there was an incredible moment. And these guys come back rejoicing and Jesus says to them, don't rejoice because these things happen. Rejoice because your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice because you have eternal life. And this lawyer, and what it means to be a lawyer, means to be an expert of the law the law of Moses, rules that the people of Israel were given by to, were given to live by in, in order to be right with God. He thinks, who is this man who can tell people that they have eternal life? And so he puts Jesus to the test and he says, it says, behold, the lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do in order to inherit eternal life, to be made right with God, to receive righteousness, which means to be in right standing with God? What must I do to live eternally? And Jesus answers him, but Jesus doesn't give him the straight answer that he was looking for. Remember, he was testing Jesus, and he was going to critically evaluate the answer. But Jesus doesn't give a straight answer to him for that reason, because he wants him to pay attention. And if we're not careful this morning, we can so, ev- so easily glaze over this and miss what Jesus was trying to say to this man. Jesus answers him in Luke 10 verse 26. It says, he said to him, what is written in the law? That list of rules that you have, what, what is written in those rules? How do you read it? And this lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself, which was the the rabbinical summation of the law, that you just love God with every single fiber of your being and love every single other person out there, just love. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he caught the man out here in a moment. Because what this man's answer is, is that in order for me to be right with God, I basically have to love God perfectly. With every bit of my heart, with every fiber of my being, with all of my energy and with all of my soul and with all of my strength and with everything that I am. And it's not enough just to love God. If you love God, you will also love your neighbor. And Jesus goes, okay, if you can do that, sure then you can save yourself. Then the law will save you. And in a moment, this man realizes, because he's a man just like we are today, just a normal human being, he realizes, but I don't always love God perfectly. I don't always love God with all of my mind. I don't always love God with all of my strength. I don't always love God with all of my soul. And I definitely do not always love people. A lot of times they irritate me in various different ways. And so he realizes that even according to his own law, he wouldn't inherit eternal life. So Jesus goes, yeah, sure. If you could basically be like God and just love perfectly, then save yourself. Go ahead. And he realizes that this answer was becoming a little bit more tricky than what he had anticipated. And so... It says in Luke 10:29 he responds he says it says but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus and who is my neighbor You see, when God tells us that we need to be perfectly righteous in order to have a relationship with Him, that we need to live holy lives, we want to very quickly, because we realize that we're not holy and righteous and we're sinful, we want to very quickly put some parameters on that. Okay, but now let's just clarify this. Who's my neighbor? Surely you don't mean everybody. Come on, let's be realistic. Can we bring this down to a realistic minimum kind of standard? What's the minimum goodness that I need to be in order to be accepted by God? Minimum goodness. Let's bring it down to something palatable, something that we can work on. But why does this man want to do this? Because ultimately, he doesn't want to put his faith in Jesus. The scripture says he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to make himself right with God. So he says, who's my neighbor? We have this same desire as this man. If we're honest with ourselves today, the reason why we so struggle to submit to Jesus is because ultimately we want to do it by ourselves. We want to save ourselves. We want to rescue ourselves. We want to justify ourselves. We want to establish our own goodness and read some self-help books and apply some discipline and get some rules and live according to those parameters so that at the end of our lives we can go, I did it. I did it. I was a good person. We want to rely on self-effort. And this is exactly what the Pharisees did. This is why they didn't want to receive Jesus because they said, I'm such a religious person. I pray, I fast, I go to the temple, I give, I do all of the religious things. So I don't need Jesus or some person sent by God in order to make me right with him. I want to make myself right with him. It tells us this in the book of Romans 10 verse 3. It says, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They did not want to submit to Jesus. But in Acts thirteen thirty-nine, it says, and by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is justified. You're made right with God if you believe justified from all the things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. In other words, through believing in Jesus, we can be forgiven of our sins and we can be made right with God in a way that following rules or principles or religious concepts or precepts or programs could never have done for us. It's a gift. That's why it's called grace. Only through the grace of God can we be made right with God. That's why he sent his son. And so, In the context of this question, how do I inherit eternal life? I want to justify myself. Jesus then tells a story. He tells a parable. And we're going to look at that story for the rest of our time today. It's in Luke chapter number 10. Again, if you have your Bibles, you can turn here. We're going to hang out in Luke 10 for the rest of the morning. Luke 10 and verse 30. We're going to read this quickly. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back, when I return. Which of these three, Jesus asks this lawyer, this expert of the law, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, this is a story, the story of the Good Samaritan that you've probably heard many times. It's become a well-known proverb in our day and age when you talk about being a Good Samaritan. And again, we can read the story, forget the context, forget the question that Jesus was answering when he told the story, and make this all about following rules. Well, you know what? When you see somebody in, in need, you should just go help them. That's what God wants. And sure, that is what God wants. But Jesus was answering the question, how do I inherit eternal life? He was saying something through this. And I want to just, for the rest of our time together this morning, take a look at what Jesus was saying. The first thing that Jesus says is that there was a man who was traveling on a journey. And he was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, I know that when Jesus told stories, he didn't just make things up for the sake of, of, of illustration. Jesus actually had some real purpose in everything that he was saying. He mentions two cities there, Jerusalem and Jericho. Jerusalem, we know, is known as, the word Jerusalem means a city of peace. And we know that it is a symbol of heaven, of the peace that we will have as people with God. It's also the place that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jericho, we know from the Old Testament, was a place that worshipped a fire god called Molech. And the people in that city would often sacrifice babies to that god by heating up a statue of Molech and then burning this baby in the hands of that statue. And that's why God declared that place as cursed. Human sacrifice as cursed. And it was destroyed and God said nobody should ever rebuild it. And here you have a man who is traveling from the city of God, the city of peace, the place where Jesus died, and he is traveling to a place of human sacrifice, where in order to appease or be right with God, you have to offer sacrifices of the humankind. And this man is traveling along that road. And as as he's traveling along that road, it says he fell among thieves. And these thieves stripped him, wounded him and left him half dead in the street. Who were these thieves? Who are the thieves that we come into contact with, and that we sometimes are, as we travel from a place of rest in Jesus and the cross to a place of making it all about what we can do? Who are the, what what robs us on that journey? In John 10 verse one, Jesus talks about thieves, and he says, most assuredly I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door. The sheepfold, as Jesus was speaking, meant the church. It meant the family of God. It meant the people of God. It meant being right with God. You become one of God's sheep. You become a part of of, of his family. He is the great shepherd. And this scripture says, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door. Jesus said, I am the way the truth, the life. I am the door into the family of God. But Jesus says, the one who does not enter through the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. Now, I don't know if you've ever climbed anything. If you've ever tried to climb a mountain, it denotes effort, self-effort. If you've ever tried to climb a mountain I remember being on holiday with my wife and, and we decided that we were going to climb Table Mountain because who wants to pay 50 rand for the cable car you do 10 steps in that's what you want to do but we started climbing and 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 we were so pumped at the foot it's so it's so glorious it's so glamorous down there you know you, we're going to climb this thing we're going to stand on top we're going to conquer this mountain We've got our water, we've got everything that we need, we've got our running shoes, our best running shoes on, we're gonna climb this mountain like nobody's business. And when you start climbing, and you realize how tough it is to climb a mountain. 10 steps in, and you're breathing so heavily, you need to stop, but you can't because there's other people around, and who stops 10 steps into a climb, right? And then you get those old ladies who live in Cape Town and climb it every day, and they're 80, and they're skipping up the mountain like little mountain goats, and you're going, no, no, I'm fine. I'm just, I'm just, I want to take a photo of this. This is beautiful. I want to just, oh, there's a stream. We're just going to sit here a little bit. And, and, it, and it's so tiring. And I remember us being completely out of our depth, completely too unfit to climb this mountain. And halfway up, we were, we were finished. My, life was, my wife was literally lying down on a rock, like on the edge of death, just lying there, you know, just, just like trying to recover, I was just sitting down, sweat, it was hot, it's hot and cold at the same time when you're climbing a mountain, it's the weirdest thing, and, uh, and so I said to her, okay, we need something to drink, I'm, I'm really thirsty now, we were saving our water, because we didn't want to finish it before we got to the top, and I said to her, hey, because before we left, I said to her, can you just grab us something to drink, now we're halfway up the mountain, and I'm like, okay, give me the water, and she's like, oh, she didn't bring water, and I was like, okay, well, what did, what did you bring to drink, she said no, well she made us some Oros. Oros is OROS is great, you know, Oros is fun. Um, it's not as fun when you're climbing a mountain, but I was like, okay, it's OROS. And she said, yeah, and she also made it fizzy. You know, she made it fizzy just to make it more fun. And now we're halfway up a mountain and it had taken a couple of hours, so it's so it's hot. So it's hot, fizzy OROS halfway up a mountain. And, and I took it out of the bag and this one liter bottle looked like a three liter bottle. I mean, it was ready to explode. I'm glad we had taken it out of that point because it could have just sent me, sent me like skyrocketing across to Musenberg or something if it had blown. You know, just, just I take out this bottle. It's warm. It's about to explode but I am so thirsty so I'm risking my life to open it and, and as I open it, I don't even get the cap all the way off and it just goes, just shoots up into the air and we never saw that lid come down ever again. It might still be floating in space at this very moment. It just shot so high up, and so now we have a bottle of warm fizzy oros that cannot close, and you have to make a decision. It's moments like those, you know. You have to make a decision: do I leave it? Do I abandon it? This is the only liquid I have. Perhaps we should now carry. And so we, we ended up carrying the warm fizzy oros up the rest of the mountain, just oros spilling over my hand every every three steps, and 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 that was that was that was fun. It's one of those things that you do once and then you think, not again, never again. I love, I love cable cars. I love cable cars. So climbing is effort. And Jesus says, the one who says that you need to climb into the family of God using your own effort, that person is robbing you. That person is stealing from you. If you've ever heard preachers say that in order for God to accept you, you need to to be better, and you need to live better, and you need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to do that, you have been robbed. And these robbers didn't just rob those people, but they beat them. When you try and serve God in your own strength, using your own goodness and your own motivation, it's like being punched in the gut, stabbed a couple of times, and stripped of all of your dignity, and you're literally lying on the ground going, all I wanted to be was a good person. And that's what happens when we try to save ourselves. What the law does is it reveals to us how desperately sinful we actually are. If you've ever wanted proof that you're not a good person, try to be good. Just try very, very hard. I'll put that challenge. Anybody here today thinks they're a good person, just try your best to be good. Perfectly good. And you find out real quickly that All of us are flawed, all of us are imperfect, all of us are sinful, and all of us make mistakes. And so the law reveals our brokenness, because it shows us a standard that we could never achieve, even the minimum standard we could not achieve. Those who teach that you need to work for your salvation, or that you need to work in order to keep your salvation that you need to do more and try harder and sin less, they're robbing you because you can't do those things. The law has beaten us, stripped us and wounded us and what it leaves us is, is in a state of half death. We might be breathing and walking around and going about our daily business, but there is no life on the inside of us because no matter how hard we try, we still continue to fail. And I believe that God actually allows us, that the Holy Spirit will allow you, if you are trying very hard to save yourself, He will allow you to continue failing and failing and failing and failing until you realize that you cannot save yourself. And that's a moment of honesty. It's a moment of humility. It's a moment often of brokenness. But in that brokenness, we see God's grace where he goes, it's okay. You don't have to save yourself. So that's what the law does. It leaves us half dead. The very thing that was supposed to give us life ended up bringing us death. In Romans 7 verse 8, Paul talks about this and he says, but sin taking the opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. And what that means is, is that you don't necessarily want to do bad things until somebody tells you not to do bad things, and then you want to do bad things. Like if you're walking past a house, if you had a group of boys walking past a house, I've seen this with my son. They look at the house and they just walk by. But you put a big red sign outside that says, do not throw stones at this house. Naughty boys will be punished. And every little boy wants to pick up a stone and throw it. I'm like that. And that's what Paul's saying here. He says, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived. The Bible says the strength of our sinfulness is in the law. And I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Instead of rules and principles and regulations helping me to be better, it actually made me worse. So Jesus says, this is what happens when you you follow the law. Remember, he's answering the question, how do I inherit eternal life? He then goes on and he says, but a certain Samaritan. But a certain Samaritan. Now, I looked at that word Samaritan, which is originally the word shamarin, which means a keeper of the law, a certain keeper of the law. Now, Jesus was speaking to a law expert, an expert in the law, and there have been many experts in the law, what God expects and what God requires and what God wants from all of us, but there has only ever been one person who has kept the law perfectly, and his name was Jesus. I believe that this story is not a story just about how we should help people that are in need. But Jesus was telling a story about himself. And he was saying there was a certain keeper of the law. And this keeper of the law came to where this broken man was. Jesus came to where we are today. He came to where we were in our sinfulness, in our brokenness in us trying to follow the law and having been beaten and stabbed and stripped of our dignity and lying half dead on the floor. Jesus comes to us in that state. Some of us think that God doesn't want to come to us, doesn't want to meet us because of how sinful we are, but that is exactly the reason why he wants to meet you. He comes to you in your situation, in your moment. A certain Samaritan, a certain keeper of the law came to where he was The Bible says that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to step down from heaven and step into this life, onto this earth, to come and meet with broken people. That's the grace of God and the goodness of God. He came to where we were broken, wounded, half-dead people. And what did he have? He had compassion. He didn't have judgment. He didn't have a finger to point He didn't have a stone to throw, he had compassion. And when the Hebrews spoke about compassion, it meant more than what we mean today with a little bit of sympathy. and Oh, I have compassion for you. But no, when Jesus spoke about compassion, that word compassion literally meant a pain in the bowels, a pain in the gut. It's like The, the, the Hebrew people believe that from your gut emanated these strong feelings of, of empathy and compassion and love and mercy. And so literally you bent over in pain for someone. That's how Jesus feels when he looks at us in our broken state. He's not there to judge. He is moved with compassion. And we see it in Matthew 14, verse 14, where it tells us about one such situation. It says, Jesus went out and saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. He has a desire to heal and to restore and to redeem and to transform your life, my life, our lives. That's the God whom we serve. Whatever situation you're in, Jesus meets you there, and he's moved with compassion for you. He wept over the lost. He wept over those who hurt. And so this is essentially Jesus' answer to the lawyer. Jesus is saying, this man is saying to Jesus, Jesus, okay, 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 okay. You're saying these people, are are, 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 their their names are written down in the Lamb's book of life. They have eternal life. But I want to ask you, how do I inherit eternal life? And and Jesus says, have you tried the law? And he goes, "I've, I've, I've tried the law, but, and Jesus goes, okay, let me tell you something. Let me tell you a story. And ultimately what Jesus was telling this man is that you are the broken man. You are the wounded man. You are the man who has tried your best to be good, but you've been beaten up by the law because there is no way that you can fulfill God's standard of righteousness. And so you're living a half dead life thinking you can make it on your own, but there was a certain Samaritan. But I have come. I have come to give you life and Jesus calls it abundant life, not just living life, not half life, but full life. I've come to give you life. You've thought that through the law you can be made right with God and justified, but I am here to heal you. You've been looking for ways to save yourself, but I am here to save you. And so I always encourage people, if Jesus has saved you, stop trying to save yourself and trust in what he has done. It says that when Jesus got to this man who had been beaten up, he bound up his wounds And poured on oil and wine. We know that when Jesus was doing uh, the first communion, when he was sharing the, the bread and the wine with his disciples as symbolism of what he would do for them, he said that the wine was his blood that was poured out for us on the cross. Jesus died on the cross for us, and his blood was the evidence that he had taken the judgment that we deserved. He did it on our behalf. And so on the wounds of this man who's just trying to journey along and who's just trying to be good, God pours out his blood, the blood of his son, to bring complete forgiveness, complete righteousness, complete restoration. And not only does he pour out the wine, but he also pours out the oil. And the oil we know is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Because not only does God forgive us, but He empowers us to live a different kind of life through His Spirit. It's never because of how good we are. It's always because of how good God is. He pours it out, the oil and the wine. He gives us that ability to walk according to the Spirit of God, to do things that we wouldn't have done if we were just our selfish selves to become generous and to become grateful and to become people who love to serve others. You see, now we're actually ironically fulfilling the law by, by us, us ceasing to try and fulfill it and receiving God's grace. We're now able to fulfill it through Christ and through his grace. Jesus takes this man and he sets him on his own animal, the Bible says, and, 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 and takes him to the inn. And he pays the innkeeper and he says, it says, when he departed, he took out the two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. And he said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. I truly believe that this inn is the church. You might have many different ideas about church and what it is. You may have had good experiences with church or bad experiences with church. But what we can see from the story is that the church is not meant to be a place where people are putting up a facade, where people walk in with a bunch of pretense, where, where people aren't allowed to be honest about their failures and their faults. It's not a place for perfect people. It is a place for wounded people. The church is a place for broken people. The church is a place for people who have been beaten up by life, been beaten up by trying hard to be good, have been beaten up and have been left wounded and been left half dead. And Jesus brings them to the church and he says, I want you to take care of these people. And unfortunately, that hasn't always been the case with church. Jesus called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. And in the desert areas, if you walk around there, it's incredibly hot. And oftentimes, if you find a bit of shade, you would just want to go into that shade. But because snakes also sometimes like shade, a traveler traveling, wanting a place of rest, wanting a place of restoration, would instead find venomous snakes. And that's what Jesus calls people who teach justification by the law. He says, you're like snakes when people are looking for rest. People have had broken lives. People are facing real situations. People have got little children that have been diagnosed with terminal illnesses and are are facing divorce and are facing all kinds of disappointment and they come to the church looking for hope and too often we're spitting venom at them because we're self-righteous and we're judgmental. And I'm hoping that God would give us the grace to be a church of open arms, to be a church that welcomes every person You don't even have to believe before you're allowed to belong here. You can belong before you believe. Because we believe that God takes us all on a journey. And God has love and grace for all of us and he wants to lead us. And so Jesus says to the innkeeper, take care of the broken people. As a church, I hope that in the future we can do that. As, as the church, as us, as people, that we can love people and not judge them, that we can have grace for those that are hurting, grace for those that are broken. Jesus has already paid the price for those people. He already took the money out of his pocket and said, I, I've, I've paid the price for them. I've died for them. You just take care of them. And then I love what Jesus says. He says, and if it costs you anything more, especially for the guys that were up at 5.30 this morning carrying sound system up some metal stairs. If it costs you anything more, when I return, I will repay you. I will repay you. There is a reward in what we do. There is a great reward in serving and in loving. And God brings that reward with him. He goes on and he says, so go, Jesus tells this man, he says, do you, do you get what I'm saying? Do you get what I'm saying, that you're the broken man, and I have come to give you life, and, and do you understand my grace? And then he says, so go, you go, and you do likewise. And I believe that's why we started Anchor Church. That's why myself and my wife and our team, that's why we believe in what God is doing here because God found us as broken sinners and he poured his grace, his oil and his wine into our lives and he said to us, now you go and share it with others. That's what happens when you experience God's faithfulness in the midst of your sinfulness. When God's love meets your imperfection and he declares, you're not guilty, I've died for you already. What happens is is that we begin to have a desire to to serve others and to show them the same grace that we've been shown. I was having coffee with one of our worship leaders, Reynard, not, not long ago, and he told me about the scripture that we read this morning with Peter and how Peter was walking and wherever Peter walked, even his shadow touching people would cause people to be healed. And Raynaud said this to me, he said, even the darkest parts of our lives, your your shadow is the darkest part of you, and even the darkest parts of your lives, when it comes into contact with God's grace, can begin to heal others. Even those areas that you have struggled, even those areas that you have failed, even those areas where, where you've been ready to give up, even the darkest parts God redeems, he restores, and he uses it to bring healing to others. That's what happens when we come into contact with God's grace. We are able to go and do likewise. So Jesus answers the question of eternal life by essentially saying to this man, stop trying to save yourself. Stop thinking you can make it on your own. Admit that you're broken and come to me. Come to me. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, this is the invitation of Jesus. He says, come to me, all you who labor, you who work, and are heavy laden, you're burdened, you're trying to make up for your own sinfulness. you're trying to do away with your own guilt and put away your own shame, and you are feeling the weight. You're working and you're, you're burdened. Jesus says, "Come to me, and I will give you rest. I'm going to give you rest. I've already paid the price. I've already done everything that you need. And I've come to meet you with compassion. That's why at Anchor Church, it is and always will be about Jesus. About what Jesus has done. What he has done for us on the cross. He showed us so clearly that we could never fulfill the law. That we could never be made right with God because of our own efforts. That we would only be left broken and wounded and half dead but that He came and met us in that moment. That He spilled His own blood for our sins to forgive us. And that He poured out His Holy Spirit to empower us. So that today, you and I, by God's grace, can go and do likewise. Can see a city changed. See families changed. See communities changed see broken people raised up, that we can become a hospital for sinners an inn for the broken and hope for those who have lost hope through the grace of God. I want to say for every individual in this room today, no matter how you came to be here, no matter how many times you have or haven't been to church, no matter what your life has looked like before this moment, Jesus meets you right there where you're at this morning. And what he has for you is not judgment and condemnation. What he has for you is a new life. It's perfect righteousness. It's eternal life.